0: Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Good
1: morning. Today's sermon text will be found in the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be considering chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So I'll be in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Word of God reads this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. This is the word of God.
0: We are continuing our series this morning on shepherding God's sheep. And the title for this morning's message from this passage of Scripture is The Christ-like qualifications of of the shepherd. Let's ask for God's help one more time. Lord, we do pray what we sang, that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we might see Christ. Lord, help us through your word this morning to uh, turn our eyes on Jesus, the true and chief shepherd of our souls, Lord, this is your word. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so I pray that you would do, Lord, what I cannot, and that is show us Christ. I pray for the power of your spirit. God, you tell us that we can do nothing apart from you. And so we're wholly dependent on you this morning to teach us, to lead us, to show us your truth, and we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So work is a huge part of our life. The people we work with tend to become family. The place that we work at becomes instinctively familiar. Our pursuits in school, in college, or trade often have to do with helping us land a better job to better qualify us for the work that's in front of us we want to be more accredited for what we desire to do because with most jobs there are qualifications typically the low end jobs require the two finger qualification that is you take two fingers you stick it across your neck and if you have a pulse you are qualified We know a few jobs like that, don't we? On the other end of that spectrum, the higher paid jobs with better salaries and benefits often require more accreditation, more experience, and more qualifications. And so what should be the framework within God's church? When calling a pastor, what is the criteria by which we should determine if one is qualified or unqualified. The sad thing is today that in many churches across America, we have just borrowed the standards and practices from the world while ignoring the Bible as if it has nothing to say on this subject. Not only has the church somewhat adopted the world's business standards for the role of a pastor, now he's a CEO and a taskmaster, but sadly we've also adopted on the front end of that the qualifications for what a pastor should be. I spent some time this week looking through job postings for this sermon just to kind of get a feel out there on the Southern Baptist networking right? And this network of of what are people asking? Like if they're putting something in print, what are the qualifications that they're listing? And a lot of these things are good things. Effective communication and teaching skills. Previous experience in communication and leading groups with a full-time position. Seminary training is a plus. The ideal candidate will have a minimum of five years of pastoral experience in a Southern Baptist church, must be an ordained Southern Baptist minister, effectively ministers to all ages, demonstrates organization and communication skills, effective pastoral care and ministry skills, promotes and supports Bible study, unwavering from biblical truths. But what I I did not see enough of was 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the listings for pastors and the qualifications that are listed, now granted those qualifications might be examined further on in the interview process, but what we have out there is the standard qualifications for pastors to serve in churches Very rarely reflect what is reflected in 1 Timothy chapter 3. What I'm saying to you this morning is that God's word is sufficient in all of life and practice, including what does it mean for a pastor to be qualified to serve in the office. We know that God is a God of order and a God of authority, and He has established leaders for His people. When we look at the church, it's a it's not a physical structure, but a spiritual structure. And there is structure to it, including its leaders, pastors. This, the idea of a, of a leader within the local church, the pastors, the overseers, elders, bishops, all one office with different functions, this is not an idea that came about from some ecclesial church council. But this is the the, the knowledge and the wisdom and the grace of God for local congregations. People did not just get together after Jesus resurrected to devise a plan to launch a career for guys who couldn't find anything else to do. This is the wisdom of God, the grace of God. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see this main idea that Christ-like qualifications are required to lead the church of Christ. And let me just say, I realize that I'm not at a pastor's conference preaching to just pastors. This is a congregation. And so you might look at a text like this and just say, well, what benefit is this to us? We're not pastors. We've got one other one in the room and Lord willing, one other one up close in the front row. But I I can't think of any other audience that this section of Scripture would be more practically beneficial for than God's people, than a church. It is the church. It is the people that calls a pastor. So we should know what exactly are we looking for. And I also realized that the qualifications that are listed for a pastor are not super qualifications for the super christian in the room that these qualities and characteristics really should be true of every christian of every man of every woman of every child that loves and serves jesus these are great things to aspire that they would be evident in our life and so i want you to ask the question as we walk through these qualifications is this true of me This matter is so practical for the church. So let's dive in. Let's look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so, in your outline this morning, verse 1 brings out the truth that pastors desire a noble task. A noble task. We see here that Paul uses the word overseer and we've mentioned this the past few weeks that the language of the office of a pastor, they often use interchangeable words that have a specific function. So when he calls pastors shepherds or pastors, he's talking about the shepherding role. It's this, it's one office with a differing role or Presbyteros, and we see elder, right? That's where we get that term elder. Or he uses here in this text, overseer. He's going to be an overseer, to oversee care and exercising oversight. Peter uses that in 1 Peter chapter 5 to refer to Christians as well. But I'm going to use the language of pastor. So pastors desire a noble task. So the role of a pastor begins with a desire. Do you see that in the text? The saying is trustworthy, if anyone, what, aspires to the office of overseer. In the Old Testament, God called his prophets verbally, right? He spoke in a different way in the Old Testament than he necessarily does today. He called his prophets with a verbal call. You think about how he called Moses and called Abraham. It's different than how he calls his men today. Or you think about Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, he verbally calls His disciples, come and follow me. Peter, John, come and follow me. But after Christ has ascended and the church age has been established, that the call to ministry begins with a burning desire in the heart of of a young man to carry out the work of the ministry. It's this, it's this compelling by God's spirit. It's a desire that is produced within a person. When healthy, I love how healthy models of pastoring and shepherding and what it means to be a pastor are held out then guys desire that. They see that as a good thing, the benefits and the joy and the grace that it brings to a local congregation. I think that's what we've seen in the life of Blake. A healthy model has been presented and Blake's heart turned from missions to maybe more of a a shepherding pastor role. And so it begins with a desire. But listen how, how we should think about this desire. Bobby Jameson in an article online, he says this about this desire language. He says, treat your sense of calling as an aspiration and not an infallible divine mandate. He says, subjective guidance is important and can play a role, he says, but it's far from sufficient. Paul doesn't say if anyone feels called to the ministry, a church is bound by God to call him. Instead, he says, if anyone desires the work of an overseer, he desires a good thing. And then for the benefit of both the aspiring elder, pastor and the congregation, he lays out the qualifications for the office. And so we see that God birthed this desire. I have this desire to serve in this capacity and the local church and other pastors affirm that desire, whether or not it's true or pure for what's called as a pastor. I've seen the calling language used Ultimately, it's just kind of a decision that can't be questioned. Well, the Lord called me here. And it's almost as if, again, I'm, I'm using that language so that you can't question what I really desire, right? I, God's called me to this, therefore it's above right? The realm of wisdom. It's a, like, it cannot be questioned. There's no way that you could ever question God because God called me here. But this language here, we know that God places that desire in the hearts of young men that would aspire to this office, but that call and that desire needs to be tempered. It needs to be filtered through a local congregation who can, who can affirm the qualifications that are laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It begins with a desire. Paul says if anyone aspires to the office, he desires a noble work, a noble task. Where I've heard pastors say, well, if I could do anything else, I'd do it. But I, that's really not good l- language to use, right? Surely that's not what you desire in your heart. Maybe if you desire to do something else, maybe you should just go do that thing. And I understand what's being communicated in that. And the sentiment may be behind it, but that's, that's unwise language. Paul says, he who desires the office. And Paul would never condone just wanting a position, right? That's been the downfall of many pastors, just kind of wanting the spotlight. I see how people love this guy and how he gets to stand up on an elevated platform and all eyes are on him. And so many have, have, down, have suffered downfall just for wanting a platform or prestige or recognition. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul says he who desires the work desires a good I think a good sign that a a desire in a young man who wants to be a pastor is pure is asking the question based on Psalm 37.4, is he delighting himself in the Lord? Psalm 37.4 tells us that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, that he'll what? He'll give us the desires of our heart. And that is essentially what Paul is getting to in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Is this a godly man? Right? Is he walking above reproach? And we're going to kind of walk through these qualifications. But is he delighting himself in the Lord? Then the Lord will give me the desires of my heart because my desires will be his desires. So what causes, the question that we need to ask, what causes God to say that this task is noble? Maybe your translation says honorable. And I would say it's because of who is under our care. We've been kind of walking through this series examining the role of a pastor. And according to Acts chapter 20, when Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, the past two sermons that we've heard these past two Sundays, that this is the, you are the church of God, denoting ownership, right? That you're not my people, you're not David's people. This is the church of God, that it's God's assembly. That's what Acts chapter 20 says. When we look at the cost of what was paid to buy God's people, Acts chapter 20 tells us that it was the precious blood of Jesus that bought you, communicating your value before God, that the church is not a company or a business or a mechanically well-oiled machine, that it's a people. It's God's people. God's redeemed people by the precious blood of Jesus. Those who are set apart, you are souls on which the affection of God has been placed. This is a noble task. God cares so much about his people that according to Hebrews thirteen seventeen, he's going to call into account on the day of judgment those who have been established in leadership to give an account for your soul before God. Pastors are gifts to a local congregation and are a means of grace. Why is this task a noble task? Because as a result of the work of shepherds and teachers, according to Ephesians chapter four, the end result is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. As a result of our labors, it, it, it leads to the building up of the body of Christ. Not that we are so important or that we're indispensable, but the, the gift that teachers and pastors and shepherds are to a local congregation as they exercise their their authority and as they, as they serve the body of Christ, the end result of that is that the body is built up and matured and edified. The role of a pastor carries weight from God, though it is often overlooked, down on in society, God right here says that it's a noble task. Shepherds, just the role of shepherd, like a true and real shepherd in the Old and New Testament, have that that role has always been viewed as kind of this outcast occupation of society. And listen, this is not a gripe hour to, for you to esteem me or to esteem David. We just need to give thanks to God for the office, that, that pastors are a gift to the local church. This is not woe is me, because ultimately my validation is not from society, but from God. My reward isn't from society, but it's from God. He tells me in 1 Peter chapter five, that if I, if I, if I lead well, Right, when the chief shepherd appears that I will receive an unfading crown of glory, more measures of joy in the presence of Jesus because of my faithful work. My validation, our validation, our, our esteem, our reward is not from society, it's ultimately from God himself. Society and culture don't dic- dictate whether or not this position has nobility. God himself says that this is a noble task. It's a noble task. We're dealing with God's stuff here. Conveyors of God's word, overseers of the assembly of God. Nobility. It's a noble task. And he says it's a task, he says it's work. Not easy and free from worry or, you know, hours and hours on the golf course. You know, the caricatures that are kind of painted by our society or what a pastor does. Uh, You know, every time I tell people uh, I'm a pastor, I'm waiting for that next line of, I love doing volunteer work too, you know. And I get that all the time and that's okay. This is not a pity party for pastors. I'm pointing out that there's value to this work because of who we care for because of the price that was paid to buy the people of God, because of the end result that would lead to your maturity, your sanctification, your Christ-likeness by God's grace. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. So Paul says, if, if you desire this task, it's a noble task. But also pastors set an example with their life, verses 2 and 3. Doesn't it seem counterintuitive here? Right? The mission of God's got to go out got to advance. Why set qualifications? We might discourage guys from entering into the pastorate. Well, the book of James says that many of you should not become teachers because they are, they are judged with a stricter judgment. You may keep guys out. God obviously cares about quality here, more than quantity, when it comes to those who care for his people. Now, Facebook is a good thing, right? We, we would all agree. It's got, it's got a lot of pros and cons to everything, It can be a glorious thing, but it's also a very revealing thing. So I'm asking you if you've experienced this scrolling through a site that maybe sells things, Tipton County Swap, Millington Resale, and you see someone that that, that posts on this site, can anyone watch after my children this afternoon? Soliciting a babysitter from total and random strangers online. I've got cats in my neighborhood that I would let watch after my kids before I post it online. Hey, anybody out there just want to come keep my kids? Can you imagine not vetting someone to take care of your children? And how much more does God care for his children? So there are standards, there are qualifications. Because they are his, you belong to him. And so Paul says, therefore, right? That's a purpose clause. He says, because this is a noble work, because these are the people of Jesus, because Christ is the head of the church, because this is a noble task, therefore an overseer pastor must be, right? You see the connection there? Do you see how he makes that connection? So these qualifications are because of the work. So I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on every single one of these, but let's just walk through them and kind of get an idea of what Paul is saying. And again, ask yourself the question, is this true of me? Am I exemplifying this as a Christian? So the first one is above reproach, which literally means to bring into account, to accuse in court, to bring a charge against. Paul uses it in Romans chapter eight. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one. And so this means, it doesn't mean perfect. Above reproach is not a call to perfection, but it's a call of blamelessness. Being irreproachable, free from accusation. Not accused of having done anything wrong. This quality, and listen to me, this quality essentially covers the rest, right? If a man lives above reproach, then the rest of these areas in his life will fall into line, and he will be above reproach in all of these areas. Then he goes on to say the husband of one wife. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, the literal translation of this is a one woman man. And a lot of ink and a lot of print has been spilt over the centuries, you know, debating this passage. What does it mean? He's, you know, there, there are different interpretations. Maybe he's only talking about polygamy. If polygamy is a big deal in Ephesus, he's saying, listen, you can only be married to one woman. Is he addressing polygamy? Is he barring anyone who has ever been divorced from the pastorate? Is he mandating? Like if this is a literal wooden trans uh, if we're going to understand it literally is he mandating that every pastor be married or can single men serve in the pastorate as well and here's kind of where I've landed on the interpretation of this passage and I, this is not a sermon on this passage but I just felt like if we're going to brush through here maybe I should maybe I should deal with it very quickly I think Paul is talking about the current testimony Of the man. I think he's looking at, is he faithful to his wife? I don't think, I think he's stating it in the positively. I don't think he's trying to debunk negatively everything that was true about this guy. I think he's looking at his life and is he faithful to his wife, the wife that he's married to right now? Check. He's emphasizing his positive character, right? Instead of defining his legal status of his marriage. And this understanding actually exalts the requirement. But that's not to say that divorce is not serious. That's not to say that if a man desires the office of overseer, that we're going to look at his past and maybe he's been divorced. And we just say, well, that doesn't matter. Are you faithful to your wife now? No, that's a big deal. Much conversation, much right? I mean, that's a difficult, difficult situation. But I think Paul is calling to our attention, what is the character of this man right now? Is he faithful to the wife that he's married to? Is he faithful to his vows? And this is a big deal in the life of a pastor, right? Is Is he faithful to his wife? What is the dynamic of that relationship? Because that reveals much about his character, it reveals much about who he is and how many pastors have we heard of who have ruined their ministries and more importantly, ruined their marriage and more importantly than that, ruined the testimony of Jesus by falling into sexual sin. Blake and I follow a pastor, followed past tense. We've talked about it a little bit. Man who we very much admired, listened to his sermons, read his writings, was unfaithful to his wife. And it just damaged the testimony of Christ and honestly crushed us as his followers. And Satan would love, he loves the collateral damage that comes as a result of a pastoral fall and a man who is not faithful to his wife. Then he goes on to say he must be sober minded, which literally means a saved mind. Maybe your translation says prudent, being able to exercise sound judgment. Demonstrating practical wisdom, not unstable in his thinking. Then he goes on to say he must be self-controlled. Maybe your translation says temperate. And this is a fruit of the Spirit. Titus says that he must be disciplined. Right? He must be disciplined. He is willing to deny himself and exercise self-control over the cravings in his life. Then he goes on to say respectable. And this is really that a man that has lived his life in such a way that he demands respect from those around him. That he's built up, right, his, his life testimony is one of respect. He deserves respect at, according to the way that he lives his life. Hospitable, which this literally means the love of strangers. This is an attitude, listen to me, an attitude or an action of willful sharing with strangers and friends. We know the first century probably didn't have a lot of motel sixes. This was a common need for traveling Christians or traveling unbelievers or traveling evangelists. Like, can I, can I stay up in your house? Do you have room? Are you willing to open up the things that God's given to you as a steward to bless the lives of others? when the saints needed refuge and a sense of belonging, it was important that the pastors kind of set the tone of, of hospitality in the life of a congregation. Our former pastor, well, before we came to Lucy, John Allen May, modeled this very well, just kind of a revolving door of kind of people in his house. They wanted, you know, they wanted to get to know the people that they were taking care of. They wanted to meet needs. They wanted to serve dinner. It was just hospitality. They're, so this man's heart and his home are open. And I love this qualification because it assumes like close proximity with a pastor and his people. You can't be hospitable from a distance, can you? He says he must be hospitable. He owns nothing and all is at the disposal of God for the good of other people. Then Paul goes on to say he must be able to teach. Please, I hope I'm not boring you with these. We're just walking bullet by bullet through these qualifications. Christ likeness. Able to teach. Ability, that is competency in handling the word of God. I want to bring out two two observations from the fact that he says able to teach. One, this is the only qualification that mentions gifting. You look at all these other characters, there's a character traits. This is the only gifting, right? Able to teach. And I think that brings out two things. One, we see the importance of character in the life of a pastor, right? It it might not matter how good you can form a sermon. You can dive the theological depths and not be able to to love your people and demonstrate Christ to them, and it will not matter. But I also think it draws attention to the seriousness of the ministry of the word. This is the only qualification that Paul includes in what a pastor should be, and he says he must be able to teach. And so we ask the, the, the question that might be rhetorical to us this morning, but Teach what? And the Bible answers that, the word of God. This pastor is a student and a master of one book, the word. And this is not the only time that Paul charges a pastor with being faithful to the ministry of the word. 2 Timothy 1.14, he tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, talking about the word. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself as a worker, Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling what? The word of truth. 2 Timothy 4, 2, maybe this one's a little more prominent as we understand it. He tells Timothy, preach the what? The word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repu- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. In Titus chapter 1, he says this about the qualification. All right, this is kind of a parallel passage when Paul writes and he gives the, uh, the list of qualifications. He says a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Preach the word. We often equate able to teach. That the pastor must be a pulpiteer, that his pulpit ministry must be high, home runs every Sunday. And we import at times a limited perspective on what this means. It is not just the ministry of the pulpit, although that's very important, I would argue, in the life of the church. But it's also the private ministry of the Word. It's counseling, it's dinners, it's informal conversations where the Word is explained and applied to the heart of God's people No matter where the ministry of the word is being exercised, Paul says, the ability and the competency must be there. And I can't say this enough this morning that the word must be central in the life of the church. It's the word that sustains and saves God's people. It builds us up, it convicts, it rebukes, it matures us. We are sanctified, Jesus, John 17, 17, according to the truth and the word of God is truth. The pastor is to lead his people to the green pastures of the word of God. He isn't to give them empty morsels, but full portions of God's word. It's not the illustrations or personal stories or gimmicks that give sustenance to God's people. It's the word. It's the food. Man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. But as important as that role is, it's got to be undermined with the right character. Because again, you can spend your life studying, preparing, forming servants. And if your life doesn't reflect what you preach, you're ultimately gonna undermine the word. You're gonna do damage to the testimony of Christ. There is a reason God, God cares about who pastors are to be than to what pastors can do in crafting a sermon. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He also says, not a drunkard, literally means tearing at wine. This is a man who has ruined his testimony because a of lack of self-control. It means one, it talks about a wine bibber who constantly has a drink in front of him, who cannot put it down, who lacks self-control, destroying his testimony. Then he goes on to say, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Maybe your translation says pugnacious. When's the last time y'all used that in a sentence? Pugnacious. He must not be pugnacious. It literally means a striker. So the picture is of of a brawler. And we would understand that surely if a man is fist fighting on a regular basis, it doesn't meet the qualifications of a pastor, right? If he's brawling on the weekends, like we got issues, but but the Greeks used it in a way that extended way beyond like physical fighting to the words in which we use violence and speech, a browbeater. Have you ever punched somebody with your mouth or been punched by somebody's mouth? You know what I'm talking about. James says that the tongue is a world of evil set on fire by hell, and how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small flame. And it's possible to hurt a person way more deeply and permanently, permanently with cruel words than with a fist. I'd honestly rather you punch me than to just tear me down with your words. And so this man must not be pugnacious. He must be gentle. Or he must be soft, not soft-spoken, but he must be, his speech must be Ephesians 4, spoken in love, truth in love. He is, he is to be a man that avoids retaliation. No matter how much provoked, instead of he must seek to settle all conflicts peaceably, reasonably, without animosity. He must be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, as Ephesians four three tells us. He must, by all means, if at all possible, be at peace with all men. Romans twelve eighteen. Then he goes on to say, not a lover of money. He can't be in it for the green, for the money the dollar bills. How many that we know in the, the prosperity gospel movement serve for money? Inside Edition did a story, I'm pretty sure, on John Hagee and Kenneth Copeland not that long ago, just highlighting their private jets and how much money is just given by their donors and just wasted to their selfish ends. He cannot be a lover of money. You don't have to be rich to love money, though, Right? He cannot be motivated by money. Paul served for no money, but he also served for compensation. And he also worked bivocationally. He, he argues that a, that a worker is worth his wages. If you, can, if you can afford to pay your pastors to free him up to serve in ministry, that's a good and godly thing. That's God's word. But he also pointed to his hands in Acts chapter 20 and said that I, I didn't want your silver or gold. These hands ministered. To my needs, so that goes with the bullet point qualifications. Let's move very quickly through verses four through seven. Pastors lead their homes well. He must manage his home well. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So, why the home? Why do you think Paul goes there? Why does he point to 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 a pastor's home or aspiring pastor's home? Because home is the clearest example of his leadership. It's the proving ground of leadership. Do I want to see if a man is a true Christian? Where do I look? Do I look at his papers or listen to his sermons, hear him preach? No, I look to his life at home. I've got a Spurgeon quote. that's going to be up on the screen. Spurgeon says, There is a great deal in the way which a man walks in his house. It will not do to be a saint abroad and a devil at home. There are some of that kind. They're wonderfully sweet at prayer meeting, but they are dreadfully sour to their wives and children. This will never do. Every genuine believer should say and mean it, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. It is in the home that we get the truest proof of godliness. Paul also says about his children, right? Does he oversee and manage his children well? Titus deals with this as well, because again, uh, a pastor's children whether or not he's exercising care and discipline and oversight right tells a lot about him we'd have to ask the question is he a shepherd at home does he have hard conversations at home is he willing to confront when needed at home is he patient at home does he discipline at home and show sacrificial service and love at home. Because if he doesn't do these things at home, what would make us think that he's going to somehow step into the role of a pastor and carry them out in church? Who you are at home is who you are. And Paul asked this rhetorical question if he doesn't carry out, again, godly leadership in his home, should we expect him to manage the household of God? The home is the little church. If the family dynamic in his home is chaotic and unruly, the same will be true of his leadership no matter where he is. And just a reminder, right? I need to speak about this just for a second. A part of him managing his home is that the home life of a pastor comes first. I love this illustration by Chuck Swindoll. And he he was preaching the sermon. I was riding to work one morning, listening to AM640. And he says, I love it when churches yell out, I'm number four. We're number four when they chant that because in reality, the pastor is responsible before God, then his own soul, then the the life of his wife and children, and then his responsibilities to the church because if he mismanages his home, he disqualifies himself in the church. And we err, I've been a church member and a pastor. I've been on both sides of this. We err on two sides. That is crushing a pastor under unrealistic, unbiblical expectations for his family and children, as if my son doesn't pick his nose and disobey like your son does. Or on the other side of that, dismissing it altogether just to give grace to the brother. The aspiring pastor must manage his home well, with dignity. Leading his wife and children well, if he has wife, a wife and children. Number six, verse number six. Pastors have to have proven humility. They need proven humility. Paul goes on to say, listen, he he doesn't need to be a recent convert or he might be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So Paul puts a timeline on his conversion when he should be considered for the pastor. He says he doesn't need to be a new believer, that that would lead to pride in the heart of this young man. No newbies in the office. Let me ask this, in the parable of the soils, do you remember that parable? Jesus goes out to sow a seed. What's the determining factor? Finding out whether or not the seeds fell on good soil. It's time. It's time, right? Did it fall on good soil? Well, we, we need to see what happens. Let's give it a little time. And over time, the seed that fell on good soil produced a hundred fold. Time reveals a lot. And so we need to guard from the hasty laying on of hands without the proven humility and character that is needed to serve. And how many churches have been hurt from doing this? Placing young men, it's like giving a 15-year-old like a 68 Barracuda. You know what I mean? Like, he can't handle that. Like, what are you doing? He's not ready for that. Putting young men in positions. I was ordained at 21, and if I'm being honest, it was too soon. I needed more time to flesh out. I needed to grow deeper roots in Christ. I needed to learn how to love my wife better. I, need, I needed some proven time. And there was a little bit of hasty laying on of hands in me. And it, did, it resulted in hardship the first few years of ministry. I saw a satire article recently that said, Research, Researchers determined that Job's friends were first-year seminary students highlighting that often youthful ignorance comes with youthful immaturity. We need time for him to to show himself as one approved, meeting the qualifications. And the the condemnation of the devil was desiring an office that was not his, and that's the office of God. Verse number seven, pastors are well thought of by unbelievers. This is kind of the last qualification wrapping it up. He says he he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace, a snare of the devil. So Paul begins and ends with kind of the same thing. Does he live above reproach? The outside world, what do they think of you? What would your neighbors and coworkers say of you? Are you giving this already hostile world more ammunition to bring against Christianity? Or is the way that this guy lives giving more credibility to our professions of faith? It's a high calling. This is God's stuff, God's people for God's glory. We are not to expect perfection from our pastors, but Christ's likeness. Because lastly, I want us to realize that Christ ultimately is our chief shepherd. He's my shepherd. I'm a member. I'm a sheep first. That Christ is our chief shepherd. Even the best of pastors are fallen men, fragile vessels of mercy, who ultimately are going to let you down in one way or another. I am not the head of the church. Christ is. Our lives are for him. He is the true and chief shepherd who lived his life completely above reproach. So much so that Pilate in John 19 says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Christ is the true husband who always and forever is faithful to his bride. Christ lived a sober-minded, self-controlled life, free from sin, refusing the temptations of the devil, devil exercising self-control, knowing that obedience to his Father was far better than the temporary pleasures that were being offered him. Christ lived respectably, hospitably. He is the one who gives us the ultimate sense of belonging in the gospel. Christ lived was able to teach, as he himself is the focus of all biblical revelation, pointing to him. Christ is the ultimate manager of his people. He's the manager of his home, of God's home, of God's people, speaking words of love and encouragement, balanced with truth and discipline. And his true children obey him, fear him, and revere him. He is the true humble shepherd that through his humility to the cross not only did he fall into the did, did he not fall into the condemnation or snare of the devil but defeated the devil through his humility to the cross triumphing over satan sin and death and you see it's important that we emphasize that Christ is the head of the church and not pastors the gospel is that the head of the church died for the church That Christ, who has all authority on heaven and in earth, who is God himself, humbled himself and took upon the form of a servant, truly God and truly man. The gospel is that he lived a perfect life, a life that you cannot live and are called to live by the standards of God. He lived that life and then he died the sinner's death on the cross. Right, That God punished Jesus for the sins of the world. And the gospel this morning is the call to you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, to repent and believe in Jesus. He demands a response. We must respond to this good news that the, that the great authority humbled himself to die the death that we deserved and now sits enthroned as the head of the church. And Christians, the sheep this morning, I want to encourage you, To not, this is not about us, it's not about me, it's not about David, it's not about loving us, patting us on the back, it's thanking God, it's a response to God of thankfulness, of gratitude for how he has structured and given you pastors that care about your soul, who love you and seek to model Christ's likeness to you and respond to God in thankfulness.
1: This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can, as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, Please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at